0: Would you open your Bibles to Psalm 38? We're going to look this evening at the festering effects of sin. Very vivid language. You see that in verse 5 of Psalm 38. My wounds stink and fester. Why is that? Well, it's because of sin. That's what the psalmist is getting to is the effects of sin on his life and the totality of his life, physically, spiritually, socially. There's nothing left untouched by sin and iniquity in his life. And what's amazing about this psalm that's so helpful to us is that in many ways this teaches us to examine suffering in our own life. Do we experience suffering in our life? And does that suffering ever draw us to that point of asking the question, maybe this is God's disciplining hand upon me? And that's exactly what the psalmist comes to the conclusion of. Very quickly, we see. And so it draws us into some reflection and meditation upon suffering that we may face is asking that very painful question Am I suffering because of consequences of sin? And so let us hear the Word of God and hear how David takes us on a journey of the totality of how sin affects us. Beginning in verse 1, this is the Word of God. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning, for my sides are filled with burning, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O Lord, all my longing is before you, my sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs, my strength fails me, and the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof. For my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off. Those who seek my life lay their snares, those who seek my hurt speak of ruin, and meditate treachery all day long. But I am like a deaf man, I do not hear, like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear, and in whose mouth are no rebukes, but for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me, who boast against me when my foot slips. For I am ready to fall, and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. But my foes are vigorous. They are mighty. And many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. This is the Word of God. I want you to see in the first division of this text, verses 1 through 2, so clearly that sin invites God's anger. Sin invites God's wrath. If we had to pick two topics that are rarely mentioned today, it would be the issue or topic of sin and that of wrath, probably even less spoken of. The fact is, is that God executes his wrath. It's actually because he is a just God. If God was not a just God, God would not ever show his wrath or his anger against sin In fact, if God did not display his wrath or we did not have a warning of God's eventual fullness of his wrath of of hell, then our God is not good and our God is not holy. He's a God that just allows things to happen. And he just brushes it aside. David recognizes this, that sin invites wrath. And so in this prayer, if we could look at this psalm as David's prayer, he begins by calling out to his covenant God, Yahweh, and says, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Now, I want us to see something about this. David doesn't actually seek to avoid discipline, does he? He seeks to avoid God's wrath in discipline. He asks not that the Lord would not discipline him or chastise him in some way, but it, that it is the Lord would not discipline him in anger. That's a crucial distinction because there is good that actually results in discipline, is there not? In fact, we know that discipline is that corrective that we practice for the good of those that are receiving it. Do we not? We have to. In fact, David says the same thing in what is somewhat of a parallel psalm in Psalm 6, verse 1. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. He doesn't ask not to be rebuked. He is asking that God's punitive wrath does not come upon him. But what do we see in this from the very beginning? And I hope you heard it through every line of this psalm. Every line that David pleads with God is a line of admission of guilt. By saying, God, do not discipline me in your wrath, is to say, God, I deserve your wrath. I have sinned against you. But Lord, please be merciful to me in it. This very petition of asking God not to rebuke him, to not discipline him in anger or in wrath is the very idea of recognizing he deserves it. Let me ask you, what is it that provokes God's wrath? And you know, we know that it is sin. Do we really believe it? Think about what Paul writes in Romans chapter 2, verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. If you wanted to avoid the subject of wrath in the Scriptures, you would have to remove the Psalms. You would have to avoid the book of Romans. But then we see so clearly the connection between wrath and sin. Is that it is sin itself that invites God's wrath. So while we may want to avoid that as an uncomfortable subject, it's actually for our good and glorifying to God that we recognize what it is. J.I. Packer writes this in his book, Knowing God. God's wrath in the Bible is never the capricious Self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is. So, pause. What Stott, or Packer, sorry, is saying is that God's anger, God's wrath is not like ours, where we may become angry in a flash and it's because someone has provoked that anger in us. God's wrath is not like that. He goes on to say it is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. And so when we see God's wrath, God's wrath actually is a display of his justice. What is the one thing that we desire so greatly in our society is that we would experience justice. Well, if God is a holy God, then it and God is a just God, it is necessary that he responds to moral evil. And that evil is not defined by what society thinks is evil. It's defined by God's holy standard. And so this wrath is deserved, and David knows that it's deserved, but he goes to the Lord pleading for the Lord's mercy to be on him. It's that idea that of God's wrath and wanting to avoid the wrath of God is not, again, a desire to avoid discipline, but God's punitive wrath. Spurgeon says this, my sins might inflame thee, but let thy mercy and long suffering quench the flowing coals of thy wrath. That is the plea of David, that God's mercy would be cooled by, or God's wrath would be cooled by his mercy. And David is filling the results of his sin. Notice, look at verse 2, very poetically, he says, For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down upon me. That is the heaviness he will speak of later, is that hand of God is upon him. And how, do we, how, how can we relate to this? Is How often has it that God's word has sunk into you like an arrow? That when you face God's word, you find that it leaves you distraught. Many years ago, I remember sitting under a preacher in a time where I was not quite walking with the Lord as well as I could be. And I remember sitting under his preaching sweating because of the inner turmoil that I was facing. I was sometimes thinking, did he... Did someone talk to him? Who, who told him? He was just preaching God's Word, and it sunk into me like an arrow. Now, perhaps you felt that way as well. Perhaps you've heard the preaching of God's Word, or perhaps in your time of desperation, you've opened God's Word, and you've looked at it, and it just sunk you wonderful thing about this psalm, though, is that while it does sink us, it's also a balm of healing upon us, how it helps us. But I want you to notice how he moves from this poetic imagery to this very vivid description that sin actually results in physical pain. Verses 3 through 7, he's describing the physical effects of sin. And he starts off with a summary statement, There is no soundness in my flesh, which carries this idea that there is no place where he is not feeling pain. If you have ever done something strenuous uh, physically, and you haven't really used those parts of your body in a long time, and you wake up the next morning and you go, "Ah." Oh, Every muscle in my body is sore, it hurts, I can hardly move. You've probably felt that at some point. Well, David is saying that of this sickness, of this disease, or whatever it is, that there's not a part of his body that is not feeling the effects of sin. That's why he says this, There's no soundness in my flesh at all. There's no place where he's not feeling it. And I want you to know this, the repetition here. These are parallel lines in verse 3. There is no con- or soundness in my flesh. And then the next parallel line is, there is no health in my bones. Inwardly, outwardly, I'm affected. And each time it's followed with a because. Because of your indignation... That is God's righteous anger against sin. There's no place where he's not impacted physically. But not only that, he goes on to say that there's no place inwardly in him because of my sin. And he draws us to the proper place of what is bringing about his physical illness. It is his own sin. So, twice he says this. in that phrase or that word of indignation, you'll find that that is, contains this idea of a boiling up anger. Now, we are not supposed to watch a pot of water boil because they say it never boils, right? Why do we say that? Because it takes time. But then all of a sudden, it actually is boiling up. You see, there's this heat that's there that's warming the water to where it gets to the right temperature and becomes a rolling boil. It takes time. And that's the very picture that David recognizes of his sin, is that there's this ongoing period of sin. We're never told what the sin was. We're never told if this is just a particular sin or if this is just a season in his life of sinfulness, we're not told. We're just told that it is his sin that has brought this on and that God's indignation is like that of a boiling water. And here's what we're reminded of in that. Is there comes a period of time in sin where we are in sin where we might not experience any thing that David is talking about. It might be that it's like that watching that pot begin to boil, and then all of a sudden, it's boiling over on us, and we're filling the arrows of God's justice on us. This is why we read in Numbers thirty-two twenty-three, and be sure your sin will find you out. There comes a point where enough is enough and God will discipline you. It catches up at some point. It catches up for all of us. David goes on to say, For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. And David's constantly, throughout the Psalms, using flood imagery. The idea of being overwhelmed with water and gasping for breath. That's his picture here. That he's in over his head with sin or he's in over his head with guilt. Have you ever been there? You ever been there where you feel like you're drowning? And it's because of sin? Have you ever felt... That sin was so heavy that upon you that it was crushing you? You ever experienced sin that was debilitating? You ever experienced sin that kept you frozen, like you felt like you couldn't catch a breath? If you've experienced that, that's exactly what David is speaking of. It's as if he was in the deep end of the pool and couldn't ever touch bottom. Catch a break. That's what his sin was like. And that's why he goes into this physical statement of, now my wounds stink and fester because, why? Of my foolishness. David is experiencing this sickness, whatever it is, because, he acknowledges, it's because of my foolishness. And that's exactly what sin is, isn't it? Sin is foolishness. Every time we rebel against God, we are are saying that we know better than God. It's because of foolishness. What does acknowledging sin look like? I think it looks like that. I think it looks like acknowledging, well, I'm in this place because of my own foolishness. And we couldn't ever say, well, God didn't give us a word. We couldn't ever say God didn't tell us how to live. We couldn't ever say God doesn't give us plenty of warnings. We couldn't ever say that God didn't provide all we needed. And so really, whenever we find our places in being crushed by sin... Acknowledging it looks like this, as, boy, I was a fool. Look what he goes on to say. He says, I'm utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about burning, for my sides are filled with burning. There is no soundness in my flesh, which he's just simply repeating what he started in verse 3, of that there is no soundness in my flesh. It's through speaking of this totality of all that he has faced. This is the, a total physical crushing. And I want to just pause here and say this, is that we've made it very clear in looking at the Psalms many times, a proper way of understanding the Psalms is to understand that they are poetic. It's poetry. Oftentimes we're given these vivid descriptions of something that paints a picture in our mind, but it's not necessarily literal. So the question then comes is David really physically sick, or is this just poetic? It doesn't matter whether this is poetic. this is literal. And here's why. The results are the same, is sin crushes us inwardly and outwardly. Deal with sin inwardly, where it's crushing you inwardly, that takes and has an impact on every other aspect of your life. What is just think about it for a second, what does not sleeping do to your body? What is maybe not eating or overeating or however we respond? Or that, that that crushing of where we don't want to do anything. That begins to in time impact us. We can't say, Oh well, this is just poetic as if it doesn't have any real physical ramifications, as if sin doesn't, because it certainly does. So is there a connection between sin and illness? Well, we have to be careful in how we answer that. The first is this, yes, absolutely, because what did sin bring into the world? It brought death. Why do we have disease? Well, because sin came in the world. If we were in the Garden of Eden... If Adam, had, Adam hadn't have eaten of the fruit, if he had have reached perfection and we were now all in that state of Eden, we wouldn't have disease. So why is there disease? Yes, it's because of sin. Because sin brings death. But we always want to be careful that if someone is sick or ill, we don't say, ah, it must be because of sin, because we don't know. You think of what uh, Jesus says in Luke about those that died. And they said, did they sin? And he said, did they sin any more than you sinned? But we also can't discount the fact that there is a connection at times. The truth is, is we just don't know why in every situation. But we do have to recognize this, the affliction of the soul is just as real and painful as that to which is physical. The affliction we feel inwardly in our inward being which is where David moves next is just as painful as that that is outward. And you know that. You know the pain that comes Inwardly, and how different it is outwardly. And sometimes you think, I would rather break my arm than experience what I'm experiencing inwardly right now. Because we know that in the soul, there is pain. And David is going to address this. He goes on in verse 8 and says, I'm feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult in my, of my heart. And we see from, from verses 8 through 10, this inward sin destroys us inwardly. And in, in verse 8, David is brought to this low point of it, that he's been crushed inwardly because of his sin. And in this, he says that it causes groaning. In verse 6, where it's talked about his wounds, after saying his wounds stunk and festered, and that's that physical idea, he says, all day I go about mourning. Here, for when he talks about his heart pain, he says that he goes about groaning. He says, oh Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. I groan, he says. I groan because he is brought low. But verse 9 is so wonderful. Oh, Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. In His the depths of despair, what does David acknowledge? God, you recognize all of this that's happening. Everything that I'm going through, God, you see it. You understand where I'm at. It's to say this is that God is not unaware of David's pain. In fact, David's showing us that it's actually the Lord that brought it to him. And here again, David is acknowledging that sin and his consequences before God. And I I think of the children of Israel in Exodus chapter 2 and verse 24. Where it says this, and God heard their groaning. and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew the children of Israel for 400 years, crying out to God, because a king that Joseph did, that did not know Joseph had arisen and began to enslave God's people began to wipe out their children. They experienced horrible results of sinful, wicked leaders. And they cried out to their God. And what do we see? God heard their crying. God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with them. God knew now, an interesting test study when you go back to the Exodus, which is the single most important event of God's redemption in the Old Testament, is that their redemption and their freedom doesn't come immediately, does it? God heard their groaning, then sends a prophet in Moses, but it's not immediate. And Then they go and wander in the desert for 40 years, wondering, why didn't you... Why did you rescue us to starve out here in the desert? In Egypt we had dill, we had cumin, we had all of these wonderful things. So what does he say here? My longing is before you. Listen, if you're ever crushed by your sin, it's before the Lord and he knows. And he hears your groaning. David goes on to say, my heart throbs. That is, he's having heart palpitations. His heart is racing. And I, I don't know if you've ever experienced that. I, I personally have not, but I've talked to people where their heart rate just goes really, it, 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 it knocks them down. Their heart is racing. Their heartbeat is going way above normal. It's painful. It's frightening. It brings on All of these anxieties, it's a horrible experience from what I've been told. And that's what he's describing here. And so when he says, my strength fails me, and the light of my eyes, it is also gone from me, you could take that quite literally of what happens when your heart is racing. But his sight, either literally or figuratively, he can't think clearly or he can't see clearly, and it's crushing him. And if you if you've ever been in that, what I'm told is you really can't think clearly. You can't think rationally. And it's hard to get a, get a grip because your heart's just going like it's going to beat out of your chest. That's exactly what he's describing. But he goes on to describe not only these physical realities, but he goes on then to say how sin affects social realities. It strains the relationships we have with friends, but it also creates and invites enemies. Notice what he says. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off. The, the very people that you would want and expect to be with you when you are being crushed by something, David says they're gone. Is desperate and self-made position has brought him to a place where his friends want nothing to do with him. The very people that you think will stand by you in affliction desert you and leave you. He blames it on his sin. But then he talks about his enemies. He says, "...to those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and they meditate treachery all day long. They're they're dedicated to his downfall while he is in weakness. He is like a wounded animal being circled by those animals of prey that are waiting to pounce upon him, to take advantage of his state. That when he's knocked down, when he's at his low point, there his enemies are waiting to strike at him. And again, David says, this is because of my sin. My sin brought this upon me. He goes on to say that his sin leaves him indefensible. Verse 13 says, but I'm like a deaf man. I do not hear like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear, and in whose mouth are no rebukes. David was a warrior. What would it be like for a warrior to lose his hearing? What would it be like for a warrior to not be able to speak and command and to direct? That's what he's become. His sin has brought him to this place where he cannot... Defend himself, but there's also something here that's crucial to see. I think in this poetic language, is that is the silence in suffering. Think of it like this: suffering in a closet by yourself, and that's what he's describing. His enemies, though, they're not silent. They're they're meditating treachery all day long. They're thinking of ways to attack him. They're speaking about him. They're going after him. They're seeking his harm. but, But David, while his enemies are clamoring, he's by himself. And he can't hear them. Can't tell when they're coming. Can't see when they're coming. He can't defend himself. So what can David do? Look what's happened. His friends are standing away. His enemies are after him. He's physically sick. He's inwardly sick. And now socially, he's unable to redeem his image. This is the social consequences of sin. Perhaps you've been there. I think that that might be the most difficult part of sin is the public scorn that sin can bring, and it does, doesn't it? Look at all the recent scandals you see. In our day and age, they're quickly forgotten, aren't they? Because we live in a shameless society. But when there was at one time honor and virtue embraced in our society, those things would have been the worse, is public scorn because of sin. We have to recognize this, is that sin Has only one solution. Look at verse 15. But for you, O Lord, do I wait? It is you, O Lord my God, who will answer. For I said, Only let them not rejoice over me who boast against me when my foot slips. What does he say here? He's not alone. God has not abandoned him. And when his enemies would seek to boast over him because he's utterly crushed by his sin, he's asking the Lord, don't let them crush me, but rescue me, and don't let them boast over me. And the beauty of it is in the depths of his despair, he says and goes to God, I'm going to wait for you. I'm going to wait for you. This is his, his expression of trust. This is that he knows that God is doing a work in his life. Now, verse 17 tells us how desperate it was, and as we look at verses 17 through 20, we see something, again, wonderful. But verse 17 tells us how serious this was, and Leads me to think that this is not merely poetic language, but was actual physical suffering. He says, For I am ready to fall, and my pain is ever before me. Let me translate that I am on death's doorstep, and I'm about to breathe my last. Only you, God, can intervene and pull me out of this. Only you, God, could rescue me. And look what he does in this moment of utter despair. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. Look, if you've ever sinned and wondered, how could God forgive me? We're not told what David did, but David's sin was so great that it was crushing him physically, spiritually, socially, in all areas. And he goes to the Lord and asks for forgiveness. This is a humbling state to be in. Because listen, pride is what drives our sin. Humility is what drives our confession. And that is the point that God has to bring David to. And that is the point that God sometimes brings us to. In other words, sometimes our suffering is to bring us to this point. And that's a mercy of God. That is a grace of God. And David does not try to excuse, he does not try to justify And simply, he confesses, and confession is just simply an acknowledgement of one's faults. There's so much to learn from this, because today, what do we see, and this is ingrained in our culture and taught in our culture, is that we are to blame everything on our environment. And it starts from childhood. Why, Why did you respond that way? Well, because they did this to me. Why, did you, why did, you, did you hit your brother? Why did you hit your sister? Well, because they did this to me. And when we actually allow that to be an excuse, we invite into their world self-justification for sin rather than taking responsibility. Our society has embraced this you know, it used to be that where I could have used that example only with children, but that's not the case today. We can use that example with adults. Actually, they're better at it than kids. But look what David says. I confess my iniquity. He doesn't say I confess my iniquity because uh, that, that in your providence you put Bathsheba out there in front of me. He doesn't say, I confess my iniquity because I was a horrible father to Absalom, and that's why he's gone against me. He just simply says, "As I confess my iniquity, whatever that was. He doesn't blame it. He doesn't justify. He just takes it before God and then says, after he confesses it, I am sorry for my sin. And that's the thing, is from the heart Are we sorry because we got caught? Are we sorry because we're experiencing the discipline? Or are we really sorry for it? He goes on to say, But my my foes are vigorous, they are mighty, and many are those who hate me wrongfully. So, his enemies are clearly sinful people, yet they're described as vigorous, whereas David is seen as dying. Notice that correlation. David, who is God's chosen anointed one to lead Israel, is the one dying because of his sin, but there's sinful, wicked people that are described as vigorous over this sick and dying man. What a picture, isn't it? It shows us that even one such as David can be crushed because of his sin. How how is it that we picture Lady Justice with a blindfold, right? Because justice is supposed to be blind justice. It doesn't matter if you're David or if you're Cain. Your sin will come after you. They're going after him, he says, wrongfully. He goes on to say... Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. What a reminder that sometimes doing what is right brings and invites the wrath of man. Sometimes we will avoid the wrath of man and test the wrath of God. David did that, and it crushed him. I happen to think that when you look at David and his skill as a warrior and the ability to command an army, there wasn't a human army that he feared. But yet he tested the wrath of God in fear of the wrath of man. He goes on to say in verse 21, Do not forsake me, O Lord, or God. Be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. And this is the final thing sin does, is sin separates us from God. And this is the ultimate suffering, the, the thought of being separated from God. And so his final appeal here is that the Lord would rescue him. The one that disciplines him is the one to whom he goes. Now I want to make a couple of points about this text. David was regenerate. He was of God's chosen people. He was in redemptive history To say he was incredibly important is an understatement. David knew the Lord. And so he knew his suffering. He understood it to be the result of sin. If one is not in Christ, they will never draw that correlation. But if you are in Christ, we recognize that that is a possibility. In fact, the Bible tells us this. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his pr- reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves. As a father, the son in whom he delights. As a father, do I discipline my children? Yes, because I love them. And that's what God does to us. It's a sign, and we recognize it as an act of God's love. And this helps us to understand suffering on time, if it is brought on by our sin. Because it is God's way of drawing us back to Him. And you have to wonder about David. Had it not been the heavy hand of the Lord, or a heavy hand of anguish, maybe David would have remained in his sin. And so what is the solution? calling out to the Lord and pleading with him. Just as David does here, as he's brought to this low point. There's something else that sin, we have to recognize, brings death. We often correlate sin and pleasure as going hand in hand, don't we? And in the moment, we cannot recognize what the consequences will be as a result of our sin, but this does remind us of the the the. there is a consequence for sin. It reminds us that God's wrath is real and experienced. And there's something else that we have to see in this, is that as he closes this, sin separates us from God. We are born in sin and alienated from God. But we're brought to restoration in Christ. And here's what we have to recognize and hang on to. There is, therefore, now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So for the regenerate man, yes, your sin may bring you low. It may bring you to a point of repentance and confession of your sin but it doesn't bring you to the point of condemnation if you are in Christ. And here's why. We have to go back to this psalm and rethink it for a second to fully grasp what I'm saying. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. God did not withhold one ounce of his cup of wrath on his son. But the son experienced it all the Son experienced the most, in the most profound way that there is no soundness in my flesh because of sin. Because he who knew no sin became sin. No one has experienced the wounds that stink and fester like him, not because of his foolishness, but because I'm a fool. No one has experienced this idea of being crushed this palpitation of heart, of failing strength, of uh, the dimness in the eyes coming because of sin, more so than the sun. No one has experienced their, their family and their friends standing aloof while he's hanging on a cross. And his friends betray him, and his enemies mock him and plan treachery daily upon him. You see, he experienced evil from enemies as he tried to do good. No one has truly experienced this as Christ has. And that's the wonderful truth of the gospel. Is that we do not have to stand under the wrath of God because Christ stood under the wrath of God on our behalf. We don't have to worry about ever being alone Because Christ upon the cross in darkness said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken so that we may not be forsaken. He was crushed so that we may not be crushed. He was wounded so that we would not be wounded. He experienced indignation so that we would not experience. And so, if you are in Christ If you experience suffering because you've wandered from Him, the answer is this is like David. Look to the Lord for rescue, the one who has bore the wrath of God and taken your sin upon Him. But if you don't know Christ, this does not apply. It means that wrath is awaiting and is upon you at this point. And there's only one that can take that wrath And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And to him we must look. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. And that he bore our sin upon the cross. Providing a full atonement. And then, as we sing a wonderful reminder that he has paid it all. There's nothing left to pay. But, Father, we do live in this flesh. We do stumble at times, and we know there's consequences for that. And so, may it not take physical suffering, inner suffering, to bring us to a place of repentance and confession. May we daily go to you, recognizing our need for your grace, And how merciful you are and forgiving you are for all of our sins. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.